This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with retired veterinary surgeon, Thai cave rescue diver and 2019 Australian of the Year, Craig Challen. Craig joined me to talk about his fascinating experiences as a technical cave diver, setting records especially in New Zealand. He also discusses his involvement in the famous Tam Luang Cave Rescue in Northern Thailand. Craig also spoke about the ways in which ancient Stoic philosophy has influenced his life and how we need to change the way we look at risk and fear. It is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto this program Craig Challen, who is a very experienced technical cave diver. He's also a retired veterinary surgeon, and many of you would know him as being part of the Thai K rescue team from 2018, where 13 people, 12 schoolboys and one coach were rescued after being trapped in a cave that was over two kilometres long, being trapped by floodwaters. It was something that I know lots of people were paying attention to around the world, And it's certainly become something of a a matter of discussion, certainly through books, including the book that Craig wrote with his mate, Dr. Richard Harris, known as Harry by his friends, and that's called Against All Odds. And it's also been made into a film, apparently, by Ron Howard. But really importantly for us here, Craig is going to be in Melbourne on Saturday, the 29th of October, to give a keynote address at Stoicon X Melbourne, which is a conference about Stoic philosophy. It's been hosted and run by Dr. Matthew Sharp, someone I've chatted on this show with quite a few times, in fact, once about Stoic philosophy in 2020. So Craig and I are going to be talking about his life more broadly, talking about being a cave diver and what that entails and why he's so in love with that as a hobby. It sounds like a fascinating thing to do. And also the rest of his life and how that's panned out being part of that Thai cave rescue team, but particularly looking at stoicism, stoic philosophy and how that has influenced Craig's life. So I welcome onto this program, Craig Challen. Thank you very much for joining us today. And a big warm welcome here from Melbourne uh, to you, Craig, where you're up there in Perth at the moment. Yeah, good day, Amy. Great to be talking to you. Oh, it's lovely to to get the chance to speak with you. And it's um, certainly something that I've always been fascinated about is cave diving or the even just the idea of diving, full stop, let alone cave diving. But I, I wanted to take us back to your early years because I was reading a little bit about you coming from a a kind of I think it seemed like a country town around Western Australia in your kind of formative years growing up. I wondered why did you choose to become a veterinary surgeon? So yes I did come from Gidjiganup which is barely a country town it's just out of Perth really and uh, nowadays uh, quite some years later it's developing into one of those hobby farm type places but uh, back then it was a little bit more rural and you know I was really lucky that I had a chance to have some adventures there and learn a bit of self-reliance and I was a long way from my mates a lot of the time so just had to work out how to play by yourself which was looking back now a, a great experience 
And then as far as the, the vet question, I, like so many other kids, you know, I was in my final year of school and uh, had to choose something. And vet seemed like a good idea at the time, really. I've always <laughs> been around animals and uh, it, my parents had made it quite clear to me that they would like to see me in some sort of professional career. And uh, so I took the easy option and just followed that that choice that had been made to me. But uh, vet was uh, was great. Yeah, it's been very good to me and uh, led me into quite a lot of other things. And it's, I mean, anything is what you make of it, really, of course. But it's a, it's a great combination of, of academic and theoretical knowledge and actual practical getting down and dirty and, and doing the work. And I really found that it was a, a very well-rounded grounding for not only my career, but uh, just general life skills. Some but, people have said vet is more hard to get into than medicine nowadays, but was that the case back then? I, I think it, it sort of fluctuated. So some years medicine would be a bit more difficult and some years vet would be more difficult. Um, I don't really know. I managed to uh, managed to scrape in. I was, I was no great student while I was at school, but I managed to put in a huge effort in the last few weeks uh, coming up to the exams and that, uh, that got me by. And uh, mm. back then it was all exams. There was uh, none of this... Uh, you know, stuff about what you did during the last couple of years of school or anything like that. It all came down to your performance over that 10 days of final exams. And that was pretty lucky for me. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm good in a crisis, Amy. <laughs> I can tell. And I know that you turned your veterinary experience into a business as well. So that brings in another set of skills, doesn't it? It does. And it's an adaptation that a lot of people fail to make in, in the professions and in adapting from small businesses into something medium size. Uh, so I ended up you know, from fairly humble beginnings, just uh, nailing up a, a placard and, and starting a practice in the suburbs and ended up with a group of 19 practices across Perth and Adelaide. Um, wow. So that was, a, that was a great journey as well. Uh, sold out of that five years ago and uh, moved on um, with cave diving. I've got to say, as much as vet was good, uh, cave diving is more exciting. It, it does sound pretty exciting. I wonder, was it possible then, did having so many businesses and clearly that being a success, did that enable you to pursue such a technical hobby like cave diving? Because it does seem to have not just risk, but also equipment requirements and a whole range of skills and different techniques and equipment involved, depending on the level of difficulty of the cave that you're diving in. That's a bit of a chicken and egg question, really, mm. isn't it? I mean, is it uh, do do your experiences make the the person that you are, or does the person that you are uh, innately lead you to these range of uh, experiences that you have in your life? And and the answer is both, of course. One builds on the other. Um, I, there's certainly a couple of things that the vet. Um, experience led me to. Um, the first one uh, is sort of in a fairly base sense is that cave diving is not the cheapest hobby in the world. And uh, so you do need some sort of financial capability. You can do it 
you can do it cheaply at a recreational level, but uh, once you get a bit higher up the food chain, then there's a lot of equipment and a lot of travel. And so that does start to add up. But the other thing that's really been a strength, and that's uh, both for me and uh, my dive buddy, Richard Harris, to whom you alluded earlier. Um, so he's an anaesthetist and uh, me being a vet, we've both got a level of physiological knowledge and that's been really important to us in uh, this track we followed. So our specialty in cave diving has become deep cold water diving. And in doing that, you know, sometimes with the, the really deep dives, we are pushing the, the out edges of the physiological envelope, if you like. Mm. And uh, so having that knowledge of, of science generally and uh, being able to, to build on, on what you know and what others have discovered to be at the, the bleeding edge has been really important. And, and most particularly with uh, what you know, how you know what's going on in your body and uh, most particularly gas dynamics with decompression sickness, all that sort of stuff. So uh, that's been a, a really great journey and, and there's no doubt that, you know, the dominoes fell into place for both of us a little bit in that way. Yeah. And you talk about um, Harry there and he certainly is a, a fascinating character too. You know, I've seen interviews with him and um, he seems like a very humble person just like yourself, but what does it mean to have a diving buddy? How close do you become in the sense of diving and perhaps even relying upon each other or having some form of trust when you're doing that high-risk activity? Oh, that's a that's really important, absolutely critical. And, you know, I've been lucky because I've been doing this cave diving like for about 25 years now and I've had a, a few really good dive buddies over the years. Um, Harry I've been diving with for about the last 15 years or so, but even prior to that I had a, a couple of uh, great people that I fell in with and I think if I hadn't you know initially got uh, got together with them and, and we'd shared that enthusiasm and uh, just the pooling our resources to get out there and start exploring then I probably would have never progressed the way that I have but there's yeah there's a few factors with that I mean certainly you need to have someone that you can absolutely depend on. If somebody says they're going to be in a certain place at a certain time and, and do a certain thing, then you want to be able to uh, be reliant that they're going to do that. Um, but a lot of it's a little bit more airy-fairy, just having the same sort of attitudes to life and a degree of risk acceptance is really important. You know, you can't say, have someone that seems like an absolute cowboy to you or mm. a, otherwise is is doesn't have the same degree of risk acceptance. You need to be similar in that degree. I've already mentioned having the, the, the scientific knowledge has, has been really important. And, you know, not least importantly, you need to get on with this person. I mean, this is our hobby. It's not a profession. Um, yeah. This is something we do for fun. And if you're out there in the bush for a couple of weeks, uh, there's nobody else to talk to and no internet or anything like that. You've, you've got to get on together. And, and so they've got to be your mates as well. Yeah. And one thing I um, noted about the story of the Tire Cave Rescue was that you were actually going to be heading to the Nullarbor with Harry before that. You say that you were going to go on a trip 
and then your your plans changed. And I was looking at some of your past dive explorations, I guess you could say, online and some of your interviews, which I don't really understand with all the technical jargon. But there was one that was called Cocklebiddy Cave, which is on cavediving.net.au, and they were talking about it being the Everest of Australian cave diving. And I wondered if you could tell me about Cocklebiddy Cave and your experiences there, because it really does sound utterly fascinating, despite my not understanding all of what was involved with that. But could you break it down for us listeners who have no idea about Cocklebiddy Cave or cave diving? Yeah, sure. So uh, there's there's a couple of metaphors in in cave diving and in, uh, in life generally that I don't really take to. And one of them is this Everest thing. You know, mm. it, it seems like everything's the Everest of, of something <laughs> else other than Everest. Everest, yeah. Um, and it's just it's just a thing. I mean, Cocklebiddy Cave is certainly a, a pretty significant cave. And at one stage. It was the longest known cave dive in the world. Uh, it's about six and a half kilometres long, and uh, it's it's definitely a world class site. It's it's been uh, long superseded, but back in the 80s when cave diving was really charging ahead, and there were some huge developments happening, then um, Cocklebiddy would have uh, would have had a, a claim to that distasteful illusion. But uh, it was certainly a breakthrough dive for me. Um, so I, I dived it a, a couple of times, but in 2008, I actually managed to extend the cave and, and find another section at the end that uh, where this cave hadn't been extended for about 25 years or so. And that uh, took me from being a, a fairly unknown or, or modest cave diver, uh, along with every other a few others to um, come, you know, becoming of some note and, and proving not least to myself that I could actually do some serious exploration. So that was great. And and the Nullarbor generally, I mean, we're very lucky to, to have that area. Uh, people think of it as a, a desert. Well, it is a desert, but uh, most people don't realise that there's uh, there's a lot of water underneath there, and there there are thousands of caves out there. Um, it's one of the biggest karst plains in the world. Uh, most of these caves don't go to water, but there's around about 15 or so sites there that that do go to water and are divable. And you know, I was very lucky that I had that more or less on my doorstep. If if a 12-hour drive can be considered to be on your doorstep. <laughs> and uh, was lucky that uh, I and my friends managed to do a lot of diving out there in the early years and, and really develop our skills. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And um, one other area that I read about you diving in was in New Zealand, especially in 2011 where you broke a record there. Could you tell us about New Zealand caving and your experiences? Yeah, so New Zealand has really got some serious, uh, serious cavers and caves over there. And there's there's one site in particular over there, which has been really a career defining dive for us um, called the Pierce Resurgence, which is in the, the north of the South Island. Harry was there first. He had a, a couple of trips before I became involved, but I, I first went there in 2010. And uh, since then, we've been progressively exploring this cave and getting deeper and further in it. Um, so the last 
dive that we did in there was 2020 and we were very lucky that we got an expedition to there away before this madness with the coronavirus hit. Um, that has been very inconvenient for cave diving, I've got to say, over the mm. last couple of years. But, uh, yeah, we've, that, that's really where we developed this interest in, in the deep and, and cold water diving. So this site at the moment, um, we are at 245 metres depth and uh, the cave is still going. So we're heading back there in February of next year, uh, which I really can't wait. And we'll see if we can get a little bit further and find out where the water's coming from. Wow, that's so exciting. I noted, you know, with the, the Thai cave rescue team, there did seem to be a lot of British cavers. And I wondered, is that a common thing that there are a lot of British cavers? Is there a lot of caves that are challenging around the UK that um, are local to those divers? Yeah, so some of those cavers over in uh, in the UK, um, are, they're hardcore, really. Uh, England was the the home of cave diving is certainly where it all started. Uh, the first cave dive that we know of using scuba equipment was in a place called Wookie Hole in, in Cheshire, which is a very famous site. And that was in the 1930s. And uh, the cavers in the UK are a little bit different to in most places in the world. Most of them come from a caving background and adopt... Uh, diving when they're in a cave that goes to water and they have to learn how to get past that water. Whereas in Australia, most of us come to it from a diving background first. So we've all dived in the ocean mm. and then get attracted to caves from there. And that's, that's largely a function of the types of caves that they have, but they're much more used to cold conditions and, and squeezing through small holes and, and stuff like that. So uh, the ones that are there um, and, and you know, those people in uh, that were involved in the cave rescue that came out from the UK, uh, they've certainly got a claim in my mind to being the, the best cave divers in the world. And, uh, you know, apart from that, that level of experience and expertise, there's also a very well-structured cave rescue community in the UK, uh, more revolving around dry caves than cave diving because cave diving rescues are such a rare event. But uh, they, they seem to be always doing rescues of various kinds over there and, and they have this uh, formal structure of these cave rescue clubs that they put it all to, together, they're very well equipped and there's all sorts of things going on. You know, it seems like there's virtually a, a month goes by before there's some sort of rescue. I mean, some of them are just rescuing sheep that have fallen into sinkholes, but nevertheless, it all counts in adding to mm. the experience. Yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned their cave rescues because in some of Harry's interviews, he was talking about how he'd been teaching or training others in cave rescue for a little while and kind of experimenting with different ways that you could rescue someone if they got stuck in a cave. And it seems like that experience was helpful to you both when you were called over to the Thai cave rescue. Harry mentioned that you and him were the smallest ever Ausmat team deployed overseas for a mission, which is lovely. I wondered, did you ever have that experience or training in um, cave rescues or was it mainly Harry who had a background in that? 
look, I, I was uh, I was there when the idea first occurred to him, and mm. I've I've got to say that perhaps a little bit shamefully, this all started out th- from self-interest. Uh, we were sitting in a... There's an air chamber in Cocklebitty Cave, which we mentioned earlier, that's about four and a half kilometres inside the cave. So you dive to get that far and then you have to come out of the water, um, get all your gear across this big rock pile and get back in the water on the other side. And one of us mentioned you know, what would happen if uh, either one of us fell down this pile of rocks and cracked our head or broke a limb or something like that how would we ever get out of here and we were really forced to admit that the the prospects of of getting out alive were were pretty slim because there just weren't techniques or, or people available to do that sort of rescue happily that uh, never came to eventuate but from there, uh, Harry really took the idea and ran with it of developing some skills and, and techniques to be able to extract. And we, we always thought of it in terms of a, a cave diver that had gone into a cave and got injured and had to be pulled out. We certainly weren't thinking of rescuing some junior soccer team in northern Thailand at the time. But nevertheless, a lot of those techniques really came to bear. And so Harry designed this this course for, for cave divers to equip them with the, the basic skills for doing a rescue. And I've helped out on that course a few times over the over the years. Little did we know where it would uh, come to. And uh, I don't know that we ever really expected to to do a rescue in, uh, in real life. Um, we've done a few body recoveries over the years and and that's how most cave diving accidents unfortunately end up but uh, you always just have this idea in your back of the mind that an opportunity might pop its uh, pop its head up yeah well it sounds like the cave divers who were interviewed including yourselves but also the british team when people were saying like weren't you worried about such a high risk scenario the theme seemed to be, no, I wasn't really worried about the risk for myself because I felt very confident diving in these caves. It was actually the complicating factor of rescuing a small boy or the coach, you know, getting them out, 13 of them out of such a very long cave, even though it wasn't a very deep cave. So it seems like, you know, there wasn't as much pressure necessarily on the technical aspects for you personally, but more the rescue mission itself. Would that be a fair description? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to remember that this is this is our natural operating environment in these caves, and I've been doing it for 25 years. It's I can say that I'm completely comfortable in that environment, and uh, you know, I was well, none of us were we're going to die in there. Um, we've had plenty of opportunities for that, but I can understand people thinking about that because it's such a, a foreign environment for, for most people who have never really considered doing this as an activity. You know, most people have never even heard of cave diving, um, let alone had a go at it. And uh, so, you know, confined spaces and even... Uh, uh, well, the dark and uh, having your head underwater, breathing off scuba, um, not being able to see. Of course, we couldn't see really anything in there. The, the water was so full of silt that uh, the visibility was about 10 centimetres or so. You could see your hand in front of your face, but that was about it. So really everything was done by feel. 
And that's that's very foreign to most people, but it's what we're used to. We've all faced that situation multiple times and uh, are quite happy with that. But uh, as far as bringing the boys out, I mean, that was the, the really big deal um, about this. Nothing like this had ever been done. Been a couple of previous cave diving rescues, but uh, they were nowhere near the scale as far as distance and time and number of people involved and the fact that these were, were kids that had initially been starved for nine days um, you know, up until the time where they were located and, and found alive and well, much to everybody's surprise. And uh, so that's that's really why it seems such a, a huge thing to most people, I guess. But, um, of course, the other factor that, that I should mention is that we actually anaesthetise these kids to bring them out. Um, and, and that, to me, is by far the most uh, dangerous and and radical aspect to this whole story because, uh, you know, anaesthetising someone and then putting their head underwater for three hours is not really something that you do. No, no, it's certainly not. It seems like that is the unprecedented, well, the main unprecedented part of it. And I um, I read a journal article where you and Harry were co-authors along with a range of others in the Diving and Hyperbaric Medicine Journal in 2020, explaining all of that technical aspect of anaesthetising the kids, the drugs that were used, the full face mask that was used. And it, actually that technical element, I feel it, it doesn't really get perhaps highlighted as much or going into as much depth because perhaps people aren't that interested. I don't know. But me being a little bit obsessed with anaesthesia, I was really curious about it. And I was fascinated to hear that Harry came up with this idea of not just using full face masks, but using ones with positive pressure, which seemed to be like the critical part because it meant that if water came in, it wasn't going to go into your lungs because obviously there was pressure pushing out air. So could you explain to us some of the technical difficulties in the ways that you've really extended the idea of cave dive rescues by using this anesthesia method? Do you think it might be used in the future? And where do you think the innovations have been found or developed between you and Harry and the rest of the team? Yeah, so this has, I mean, I agree, it's probably not for the uh, the popular reader, uh, the, the journal article, but uh, it's we felt it was a really important part of the, the process afterwards to publicise this in the, the cave rescue community as, as much as possible because you never know when a, another story like this is going to come up. You know, probably not in my lifetime, but you never know. And unless the people that were there at the time are disseminating this knowledge, then whoever ends up with the, the gig at the time, they might have to reinvent the, the whole thing themselves. And, uh, you know, we'd certainly like to help that along and avoid some of the, the mistakes and traps and pitfalls that you can get into. As far as specifically about the uh, the positive pressure masks, this was something that we'd uh, covered across beforehand uh, in the experiments that we'd been running. And we'd done a, a few trials um, on the, the, the course that, that Harry was running. And for, for some reason, I don't know why this is, but I always got to play the victim when the, <laughs> the trials were occurring. And uh, I've got to say honestly to you that that was uh, one of the most terrifying experiences of my entire life, to be 
underwater and just completely powerless um, and in the hands of the the divers that are, are carrying you through the water that was it was a bit disconcerting you know i'm much more used to being self-reliant underwater and being able mm. to look after myself so i didn't really take to it and that's given me an extra strong incentive as if enough didn't uh, didn't already exist to avoid having to be rescued um, because I don't think I'd really take to it very well, quite apart from the fact that it would be professionally quite embarrassing for me to to have to get rescued. And uh, I'd, I'd probably rather die than have to go through that, I reckon. <laughs> but that'll be a, you know, those, those are brave words that would be yeah. a tough choice that I'll have to uh, face up to. So I'll uh, I'll just attempt to not not screw up and get myself into one of those situations. Well, you've been doing well for 25 years. It's a very long time for a, a hobby and, and clearly it's become a lot more than that now. Just to cover off on that topic, I know as a vet, many vets do use ketamine as part of their toolbox when they're dealing with animals. And, you know, some of the descriptions in the journal article about the benefits of ketamine make a lot of sense because you can still technically breathe by yourself. You're not stopping breathing or, you know, reducing the function of the lungs and that kind of thing. With your role in the cave, a lot of that was about checking the status of the boys and how much the anaesthetics had worn off, whether they needed a top-up dose. Could you share with us particularly your role and Harry's role in that rescue mission and I guess the diving challenges, particularly as it pertains to your technical role in the medical component? Well, how many hours have we got? But <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll attempt to give you an executive version. summary. Yeah. yeah. Um, so particularly about the the ketamine, which was, uh, that was a really important part of the process. And uh, ketamine, um, many of the listeners will probably know it as uh, having some notoriety in a recreational context, which I certainly don't recommend it, but uh, it seems to get some currency. It is used in human field medicine. Um, so for example, if They've, if you're in a car crash and they've got to cut you out of the car and you're uh, in a lot of pain or uh, have a broken limb or something like that, that's quite possibly the drug that will uh, will get used because it's very safe. It's it's easily administered in the field, but even more than that, it's used in veterinary medicine. And uh, so I think there's little doubt that I'd used far more of it in my career than uh, than Harry had ever used in his, despite his qualification as a, a human anaesthetist. Um, so apart from those things, the, the big advantage with, with ketamine is that the patient will usually breathe for themselves quite well. And you know, we've just got to emphasise the differences between anaesthesia in a, in a clinical context in a hospital, um, which you know, we even take the dangers of anaesthesia for granted a lot of the time. You think that mm. you know, I'm going into hospital for an operation, um, everybody thinks about the surgery, but nobody really thinks that uh, you've been given these drugs to remove your consciousness and it's all very safe now but that's in a controlled environment where there's lots of uh, lots of monitoring and lots of people in, uh, in important looking green scrubs and, and white coats around to look after you whereas in the the cave we were just giving a dose of this anesthetic by intramuscular injection these kids were going to sleep and then they'd just be passed off to a diver and start this three-hour journey out 
with no monitoring whatsoever. Uh, so the only way that the divers could tell that the kids were still alive was if they stopped breathing themselves. Um, you could hear the, the boys breathing or uh, feel the bubbles coming out of their full face mask. But apart from that, absolutely nothing. And, and if anything went wrong and these boys stopped breathing or, or drowned, then there was nothing to be done. Um, there's certainly no such thing as underwater CPR. Uh, so they just had to hope for the best and that was it. And just to complicate matters, uh, the one disadvantage really that ketamine does have is that it only lasts for about 45 minutes or so. So given that there was a three hour transit time and 45 minute effectiveness, that meant that the boys would start waking up multiple times during the rescue and have to be given uh, another dose to put them back to sleep again. Now, that's fine for Harry and I, uh, being an anaesthetist and a vet respectively, uh, no problems there. But the other divers, the, these British divers, um, the, the main four of them, we had a, a retired fireman, a rope access worker and a couple of IT dudes. And so not really a whole load of medical expertise between the lot of them. Um, and they'd just been given this crash course in underwater anaesthesia <laughs> of a lecture and a bit of a practical session, and uh, and they went away. And uh, there were certainly some some concerned-looking faces around the room when it was uh, first mentioned to these guys that they were going to be giving these doses of anaesthetic. But look, these are the world's best cave divers. They're they're up for a challenge, and uh, so we pressed ahead. Um, but that is pretty radical stuff. You know, you imagine yeah. if you're in a hospital setting, you just drag someone in off the street and told them to start administering these uh, these anaesthetic drugs. People would freak out about that a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, I, watching those interviews with the British guys, honestly, they do look hardcore, like the way they speak and act. They look very serious and they don't look like anything would fluster them. Oh, well, yeah, I'm sure they have their moment. Deep like down, maybe. Of us, but uh, a little bit of confidence goes a long way, Amy. Yeah. It brings us to stoicism as well, because I know that stoic philosophy, it certainly has had a bit of a moment in contemporary times. Even in the last five to ten years, it's become more prominent and more popular, I would say. It's been disseminated in books and made available more easily through people who are kind of communicating it beyond the you know, the initial Stoics who sometimes are a little less accessible in their writing. And you, I know you're speaking at Stoic on X on Saturday, as I mentioned. Stoic philosophy does seem to align itself well with some of the challenges that a cave diver might come across. I'm thinking especially of things like self-reliance being a major one and, you know, having that inner resilience and inner capacity to work your way out of problems. And another one also thinking about how you respond to the things that are within your control and also those that are outside of your control. They're just a couple of basic kind of parts of Stoic ideas. But I wonder, could you take us through how Stoic thinking or ideas have been part of your life and have shown themselves in some of your either dives or, or other parts of your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I should point out at the outset that I am by no means a scholar of, of Stoicism or, or philosophy in general. I'm just a cave diver and a pretty ignorant fellow, really. Uh, but I, I'd i been broadly aware of, of Stoicism, uh, but 
didn't know that much about it and and probably about 10 years ago or so you know riding on the back of this rise in in popularity and, and general interest in in stoicism i became a little bit more aware of it and it really seemed to me that this was in great accord with the, the general attitude that i had uh, to life anyway, um, and my approach to, to difficult things in life. And so I looked into it a bit further. And the more I looked into it, the more it seems to me that this is just an excellent set of tools in the toolbox that we can all have to uh, to approach uh, the, the vicissitudes and, and hurdles that, that we face in life and, and get ourselves through them in the, uh, the, the best way possible. Um, and then there's there's many many aspects to this and and many things that you can use, but uh, they do talk about as you you mentioned there this this dichotomy of control, um, which is you know, broadly speaking there are things in life that you can control or influence, and there are things in life that you can't, and the things in life that you can't you've you've got to obviously pay attention to them and, and account for what might happen but it's no use at all it's a complete waste of time in spending time and effort uh, worrying about those things and making futile efforts to to control them or or influence their uh, their path you've really just got to concentrate on the things that you can control to put yourself in the best position so that all seems pretty sensible and, and easy and straightforward, but uh, there's a little bit of a complication, um, which is that sometimes it's not that easy to tell which of the things that you can control and things that you can't control uh, without having your crystal ball handy to know how the future is going to transpire. So my own interpretation of this is that when you are categorising these things, you should definitely err on the side of thinking that you can control things because if you put steps in place to bring about the best outcome, it turns out that that's something that uh, you couldn't control in the, in the end analysis, then, okay, maybe a little bit of time wasted um, but you can put that down to experience and, and move on to the next thing however if you decide that is something that you don't have influence over um, and then it turns out later on that you could have changed the course of that and done something about it then that's not a great position to be in so uh, I always think err on the side of being able to control yeah, absolutely. It's certainly something I would agree with. And I always think I can control more things than I can, but I'd rather do that than regret it later. Another thing, another kind of part of stoicism appears to be about accountability, you know, taking responsibility for your actions and not seeking to deflect blame, to place blame where it actually shouldn't lie, you know, to, to reflect on your own actions and to stand up to them if you've done something wrong or if you failed at something, you know, to have a level of self-reflection. Is that something that also plays a part in your thinking and it being a crucial component of, of your character? 
Oh, totally. And uh, I, there's also a, a tension in that as well. I mean, like yeah. so many things, right? If, if all of this was simple, then there'd be no purpose for philosophers and we could uh, stop wasting our breath on this stuff. But everything in life is complicated, of course, as much as we try to make it simple. So if you've got to resolve this thing of a lot of the the stoic philosophy is towards accepting fate and what happens happens um, and there's no point uh, getting all in a tiz about it and uh, and worrying about things that have gone wrong you should just put them down to a learning experience uh, maybe you'll be able to modify your behavior or your your attitudes or your actions in in the future uh, but that doesn't mean just blind acceptance and, and thinking that you, you're powerless and uh, what's what's going to happen is is all beyond your control because a big part of it is is taking responsibility and you know internalizing both the, the good things and and the bad things that that happen to you. Um, if you you know there's there's no point in blaming your circumstances or your environment or the other uh, other pe- actions of other people around you, um, that will, will just be what it will be. And if you really want to reach a position of, of peace and, and satisfaction in your life, then you have to take responsibility for what's gone on. Um, it's, it's nobody's responsibility but your own, the life that, uh, or the, the, the course that your life takes. And one other part that's quite interesting to me and perhaps might be a, a question that people would have is, is there an ethical component to stoicism? Because a lot of it seems very individual, like focusing on yourself and what you can do for you and what you can control within your own life. But there also is this kind of broader global outlook, I guess you could say. Some call it a spheres of concern or circles of concern where it's not just about first looking after yourself, but then there are these kind of wider circles or layers to an onion, I guess you could say, you know, your family, your friends, the people in your um, local area, the people in your country, the people across the world and how we're all quite interconnected. How do you relate to that also, the ethical and moral dimensions of stoicism? Yeah, so on that question, I personally tend towards being quite a utilitarian. I, I think that the the guiding principle for me and, and really the only sort of rigorous and, and ultimately defensible uh, attitude to take to these things is we want the maximum best outcome uh, for everybody involved, um, which... Uh, once again, that's complicated, of course, because mm. um, with the, the the circles of concern, you do have a, a your concern is weighted towards things that are close to you. Uh, in an initial instance, yourself and your own satisfaction and achievements, and then that of you know maybe your family and and friends, um, and uh, around that your your local community, and then outside that. Uh, your, your nation and, and lastly, probably humanity as as a whole. Uh, I don't know if I have the answers to this. A lot of people that are, uh, are smarter and a lot more rigorous and have spent a lot more time on it have, have failed to resolve this. And, and we're dealing with a battle between 
human nature. You know, we're mm. a social animal. We've we've evolved this way, and there are very good reasons that you are uh, you're weighted towards the benefit of yourself and your own genes and perpetuation of them, and then your your community and your your family or your tribe, because you can certainly expect a lot more cooperation from people that are close to you and uh, and more support than you can from someone that you just happen to come across in the, the jungle that's probably competing for the same resources and, and territory. Um, and you, you can't take away behavioural evolution for, as, as an explanation of this, but it's probably uh, not completely rigorous. Um, and uh, so... As I mentioned, that that's my guiding principle, but mm. you just have to take that principle and try and apply it to individual circumstances as as best you can. And uh, there's the rub, of course. That's why these things <laughs> are all so difficult. They are very difficult. It, it always sounds a lot easier than it is. Just finally, Craig, I know you gave a TEDx talk uh, a little while ago in Perth and you were looking at the themes of risk and fear and particularly applying that to childhood. And I know that, you know, we've, we started this conversation with your childhood and talking about some of the freedom that you had, as well as clearly the isolation at times, you know, having to find your own fun, do your own things, keep yourself entertained. But it also meant that you didn't have, I guess, what some today might call helicopter parents, where some parents might be accused of overparenting or even then leading to adulthood, some people may not be having a great risk appetite for different situations. And you were talking about this kind of reward of risk and not necessarily conquering your fears, but pushing yourself or extending yourself out. Clearly, that's something one would do in cave diving as an example. You know, there's risk and fear involved. And so you've had to grapple with that in just one example. But how would we as non-cave diving people dealing with everyday risks think about risk-taking and fear? And was there an ultimate message that you hoped some people might think about in this kind of 21st century context of risk and fear? Oh, totally. So I... You know, as a background, I, I think there's a very good argument that I may well have lived at the best time in history um, where I have gotten to take advantage of all these advances and these wonderful things that have happened uh, with the, you know, the internet and technological advancement and education and modern medicine. And it's all stood us in, uh, in very good uh, stead. And I think life is objectively better uh, for everybody alive today than it has ever been at any time in human history. But there are a few disturbing trends and the one of those is this loss of human endeavour and an acceptance of risk and personal responsibility. And I, I certainly don't blame individual people for this. You know, there's, there's terms that get thrown around like helicopter parents or the, the younger generation are all snowflakes and, uh, and various other pejorative uh, terms that are applied to them. Uh, you know, I don't think people are any different. Um, they've all got the same sets of, of capabilities and, and potential, but... People do respond to the circumstances that they find themselves in and the environment and the prevailing attitudes of society. 
And we are seeing this disturbing trend where it, it starts out as safety. And that all sounds like an open and shut case. You know, nobody wants anybody to get hurt. Um, mm. Safety seems like a very admirable objective. But it can be taken too far because people are in their lives going to face situations of, of risk and uh, they're, they're going to have to learn to manage these risks and uh, build their personal resources. And the only way you do that is through practice. And we seem to have got to the stage now where no amount of risk is really acceptable, certainly as far as you know, physical risk goes. And it even seems to be going a little bit further than that now where people, um, I mean, we're talking about kids mostly, but this applies to adults as well, where people, it's not acceptable for them to be subjected to any sort of inconvenience or discomfort even, let alone physical danger. And the problem with that is that it's a classical case of discounting long-term advantages in uh, in favour of uh, of short-term dangers. Uh, it, you know, it's a well-recognised aspect of the human condition that things that are close and unfamiliar to us are regarded with a, uh, a great deal more gravity than things that are, are distant in the future. And so in terms of, of physical danger, if I, an example that I often use is you might have uh, kids down at the park and they want to climb a tree and they're not allowed to climb these trees uh, because they're their parents or the local council or whoever it is that's uh, responsible will say, well, yeah, this this kid might climb up this tree, might fall out and break his uh, or her arm. And so, of course, nobody wants to see anybody with a, a broken arm. I guess as an aside to that, I, I should mention that... Uh, this is, is possibly drives my whole attitude because when I was a kid, it seemed like everybody that I knew at one stage or another turned up to school with a plaster on their arm, which we all got to, to sign, except for me. And uh, I never managed to break my arm as a child. Um, that was not through want of trying, but uh, was never successful. So maybe I'm, I'm still grappling with this, uh, this sense of loss from my childhood and uh, feel a bit inadequate and I've never really gotten over it. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But uh, anyway, to, to return to the point. So, so of course, we don't want this, uh, this child to fall out of this tree and, uh, and hurt themselves. But you know, what if that child never in their life learns to climb a tree? Um, and, uh, you know, that's the metaphor for just this acceptance and, and management of risk. You've got to do these things because ultimately they're going to grow up. It's a, it's a jungle out there and there's, uh, there's lots of things that they might attempt. And if they decline to attempt these, and that has very grave implications for society generally, you know, it's not just the acceptance of physical danger, but for entrepreneurism or just intellectual risk, you know, having the confidence to, to speak out about what seems right and, and good to you at uh, possible risk to you, your reputation, 
really anything you know, sporting endeavors, any any form of human endeavor at all involves some sort of risk. And if we're teaching people that that none of this is acceptable and that you've got to keep yourself safe no matter what happens, then I think we see a, an inevitable deterioration in the, the human condition. And this does not uh, portend well for the the future of society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking for myself, this does not portend well for, for personal satisfaction. And the, the greatest times of your life, you know, the things that you will really look back on as achievements are when you've, uh, you've faced danger or risk or adversity and you've you've looked it in the eye and uh, and faced it down and triumphed over difficulties and if if we're going to train people that difficulties are something to be avoided uh, rather than confronted then this does uh, it, it's not looking good i don't reckon for the the future of humanity so, yeah. I mean, that's all, you know, glossing over the whole subject. For, for anybody that's interested, I'd, I'd certainly recommend uh, a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind, which uh, was, was really the, the breakthrough uh, work in this field. It's led to a lot since, but uh, for the general reader, um, that's an absolutely uh, wonderful treatment of the subject. I, I couldn't agree more with you, and I hope that people can check out your keynote address at Stoicon X Melbourne, which is this Saturday, Craig. I've just had so much fun talking with you about so many different topics, but especially cave diving, which now you know has got my imagination going in lots of different directions. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with us, but also your life experiences and thoughts on stoicism and life more broadly. And I really um, wish you all the best for this Saturday and hope it's a, a lot of fun. Thanks, Amy. I really enjoyed it. I've just spoken with Craig Challen, who is a experienced technical cave diver of 25 plus years, a retired veterinary surgeon, and he was part of the Thai cave rescue team alongside his mate, Harry Harris. He was also Australian of the Year in 2019 with Harry as well. And they both co-authored a book called Against All Odds about that rescue. If you'd like to watch or listen to Craig's keynote address, which was recorded at Stoicon X in Melbourne, please see the link in the podcast description. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.